Hill Church and welcome to our brand new series, Turbulence. We're thrilled to have you here on this holiday weekend. Pastor Dale is taking some uh, well-deserved vacation time with family in town. He'll be back next weekend and be preaching throughout the remainder of the series. I wonder if you've ever been in an airplane and experienced some unexpected and rather scary turbulence that came on all of a sudden. I know that uh, I've had a chance to fly quite a bit in my life and have had more than one of those circumstances in life. And the one that I remember the most was the turbulence that I experienced on what was the most important plane flight that I ever take. It was the flight from Virginia to Chicago for my own wedding. I was so excited about what lay ahead of me on that wedding week to see my bride, to see family, to just celebrate a week of festivities with friends and family. I couldn't wait to get to Chicago. And when I got on the plane and the pilot said something about the fact that we might experience some turbulence on this flight, I was a little bit checked out until we got up into the air and we experienced turbulence from like the time the plane took off through the remainder of the flight. It didn't take long for the familiar voice of the flight attendant to come on and say, the captain has illuminated the fastened seatbelt sign. Please take your seats and remain there until the fastened seatbelt sign is turned off. It was never turned off the entire flight. It was shaky. We were turning and the turbulence was horrible. And I really got a little bit afraid when the pilot came on and his voice sounded a little bit shaky and he said, uh, folks, we're going to divert our uh, attended uh, target's destination. He was kind of stammering like that. We need to go to Detroit and fly around there for a while because there's tornadoes in front of us where we were supposed to go. And now the entire flight is just uneasy. I mean, we are scared to death. And I'm thinking, I want to marry this woman. I, you know, I've been waiting forever to marry this woman. And I thought I was going to die right there and then. When we finally landed several hours later, um, half the plane was sick. Maybe you've dealt with turbulence like that before in your life. It's really difficult. I, I tend to fall asleep when I'm on most planes, when the flight attendants get up and they give their safety presentations. I've heard them so many times, it just feels like white noise to me. And some of us, when it comes to our relationship with God, treat God in much the same way that we treat the flight attendant. He's just a voice that we've heard so many times in our life. Maybe you're even there this morning. You know, it's just one more sermon out of so many sermons that you've heard in your life. It's just going to be more of the same thing. And if that's where you're at this morning, I want to encourage you to tune in. We're, over the next several weeks, going to be talking about turbulence. I don't know a person in life who hasn't dealt with seasons of turbulence in their life. In the promotional video last week, Marsha Hummel and her very good friend, uh, Kathy, talked about the different types of turbulence that we might face in, our, in, our, in, in an airplane. The experts tell us there's seven different types of turbulence that an aircraft might experience when it's up in the air. But the most unexpected, the most scary, the most, uh, and one that is becoming more increasingly common with our climate change is something that uh, experts call clear air turbulence. It's a turbulence that comes seemingly out of nowhere, and the pilot is left to respond with their best instincts and hope that the, the instruments in the plane do what they're supposed to do. And some of us can relate to that in our personal lives. Maybe you're here today, and you're in a season of what feels like clear air turbulence in your life. Seemingly out of nowhere over the past week, month, year, some things have happened that have just altered your life. And in the season of turbulence that you find yourself in, you're feeling maybe a little bit numb or shell-shocked. 
Maybe you're here today and you wonder, God, do you even care? Do you even know? Maybe the period of turbulence that you're in today has caused you to question whether or not God even exists. Is God real at all? Or is the stuff that I, I, I believed for so many years, is it just a fairy tale? Maybe you're here today and this is kind of the last Sunday that you're giving church a chance. And, 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 and it's one of those last ditch efforts in faith. And if you're in one of those seasons right now, what I want to say to you is, friends, I'm sorry. I know it's hard. I believe that God has brought you here today for a purpose. I believe that God wants you to know that he loves you. He knows. He's near. He cares. He's for you. And I hope that this sermon will be an encouragement to you. Now, you might be on the opposite end of that, that, that spectrum. You might say, I've just come through the best week of my life. This was the best ever 4th of July. I saw the fireworks three times. It was so good, you know. This has been a great weekend. I got along with everybody in my family. You might be there. But every one of us have been in those seasons of turbulence. And you'll be there again because the fact of the matter is we will all face several seasons of turbulence in our life. How do we respond in the seasons of turbulence? The Bible has much to say about this. There's an apostle whose name was James, who's a fascinating figure in Scripture. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He was a skeptic at first who saw his life transformed by his own half-brother. Over the course of his life, James had seen his brother crucified by the religious leaders. He'd seen those same religious leaders oversee a persecution of the early church where they were seemingly trying to exterminate the early believers and, and overseeing a genocide of, of that church. James led the church at Jerusalem during that time. And so when you read the book of James, what you read is essentially a book that is written to a persecuted church, the persecuted church that was located in one of the most important cities in the world, Jerusalem. This is what James wrote in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How are we supposed to experience that joy that he talks about in the midst of the trials? I have a pastor friend of mine who has said this about these verses, when you're going through the turbulence of trials, stick with what you know based on the you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So many of us in our lives can attest to that fact. We know that we are who we are today because of the trials that God has allowed us to go through and that God has brought us through. We've been able to bless so many others because of the hard times that we went through at an earlier season of turbulence in our life. And God has used that very thing that shook our faith, that created doubt, that created anxiety to be something that has produced something absolutely beautiful in us. And you might say, okay, intellectually I get that. I can look back on my life and I can see that. But how do I experience joy in the midst of that? I mean, was, was Stephen serious? I mean, was, was James serious about that or was he just kind of smoking something? Well, listen, he's not the only New Testament writer that speaks of joy in the midst of trials. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord 
always, I will say it again, rejoice. And again, we, we read that sentence in and of itself, those couple of sentences, and we say, seriously? It's a little bit of a tall order, isn't it, Paul? I need to rejoice in the Lord at all times and in all ways. Paul was so serious about this that he said it twice. Write this down. In the good and the bad, we need to rejoice. In the good times and in the bad times, we need to rejoice. It's what James hints at. It's what Paul explicitly says. Rejoice in the Lord always. And you might be here today saying, yeah, but Brian, Paul was a champion for God. I'm not Paul. Paul was God's man in the first century. Paul was this guy that, that, that had such a good life. What did Paul know of suffering? It was easy for Paul to rejoice. And if that's where you're at today, you, you don't know Paul. When Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church, Paul was actually a prisoner in Rome, the most powerful city in the world, the, the center of the Roman Empire. It was the city that he had dreamed of going to as an apostle to share the hope of the gospel, but he didn't dream of going there in a prison cell. He dreamed of going there and proclaiming Christ in the public square. Meeting Jesus had changed everything from Paul, for Paul. Prior to knowing Christ, Paul was the one who oversaw the genocide of the early Christians. He went from being the jihadi John of his generation to being the leader of the early church. Paul was responsible for planting so many churches in the first century. The church at Philippi was one of those churches. When Paul ministered in that city, he was brutally beaten. He was taken into prison. And the way that I think it's Acts 16 describes it is that while he was in prison, he actually, in Philippi, began to sing praises to the Lord. So that the jailers and the other prisoners saw his faith and wanted what he had. And the church at Philippi began to grow in the prison cell that Paul put, that, that God allowed Paul to be put into. Following Jesus had put Paul on a collision course with Nero, the powerful emperor of the Roman Empire. Following Jesus had transformed Paul, but it had also brought about beatings and stoning, shipwrecks, the long, arduous work of church planting, the abandonment of friends, public ridicule, imprisonments, the persistent pursuit of those who wanted nothing more than to stop the first century's most influential church planter. Paul felt that the suffering was worth it, though. Over and over again in his writings, Paul talks about that. It's worth it for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. It's worth it so that Christ might be glorified in me. It's worth it if it advances the work of God in his generation. There were now scores of believers in Philippi and other cities like it because of the faithfulness of Paul. His book to the Philippians was unlike any other letter to his churches. It's just four chapters. If you want to be encouraged today, just read the book of Philippians. There is more joy in those four chapters than almost anywhere else that you'll find in Scripture. It's very short on rebuke for the church. He was full of praise for what that church was doing well. The church at Philippi brought joy to Paul's heart. Rome was 700 miles away from Philippi, but it, it may as well have been next door because the persecution that was happening in Rome was also happening in Philippi and throughout the entire Roman Empire. The first of Paul's European church plants, Philippi, was one of those cities under Roman rule. 
It wasn't uncommon for citizens in that city to be arrested and taken to Rome. And they'd heard the stories of what happened to Christians in Rome. Nero was creatively grotesque in his treatment of Christians. Some he would put pitch and tar on, and he would set them aflame, and they would be light for the streets of Rome. We've heard the stories of what happened in the Roman Colosseums. Our Hollywood industry still makes movies about what happened to the Christians at the Colosseum. And then there were just the, 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 the trials and the beatings and the imprisonments of so many of their brothers and sisters. This was the church that Paul was writing to. Despite all of this, Paul's letter is full of joy. It's full of hope. It's full of instruction for how do we live with joy in the turbulent times of our lives. It was a letter that taught Christians how to live in the most difficult of circumstances. And while you and I may never experience the level of persecution that the early church did, know that there are brothers and sisters of Christ of ours who live all around the world who do experience that. And you and I will go through turbulent times, just a different type of turbulence. And the instruction that Paul gave to this church is as valid for us as it was for that church. There's so much that we see. And Paul teaches this first century church that we need to learn that in the good times and the bad, we need to rejoice. And you might think to yourself, that's a little bit trite. I mean, it sounds just too simplistic. How am I supposed to rejoice when things are going bad? And I want to tell you today, I get that. Get it. Been there this week. Been there this month and said, Lord, you know, this is hard. I'm struggling with being able to rejoice in the midst of that. It's natural for us to want to wallow in our pain, to want to complain, to want to speak poorly of others. It's natural to want to blame someone else for the turbulence in our lives. But see, that's what's so beautiful about what God is doing. See, he wants to do something supernatural in us. He wants to do something in us that can't happen in and of our own strength. Maybe the reason that we struggle so much with the turbulence that comes into our life is because we have misplaced the source of joy in our life. We've begun to believe the lie that joy is found by having the most toys or having a beautiful cabin that we can escape to from time to time. Joy is the result of having a great marriage or having great kids or your NBA team signing the right free agent. Come on, Timberwolves, can you sign somebody for me, all right? We believe that joy comes from our circumstances. We have become a society that is convinced that joy comes from things. And so we love our things and we use our people instead of loving people and using things. We've gotten it so screwed up. You see, joy doesn't come from that. When Jesus was asked where joy came from or when he was asked what the greatest commandment of them all was, this is what he said in Matthew 22. Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, he said. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, guess what? You're going you're gonna to follow the first of the Ten Commandments. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to have trouble with the rest of the commandments. And your life begins to flow in the order in which God has called us to live. You see, God is more concerned with our holiness than he is our happiness. Happiness is something that happens in our life because of happenstance. So if the Timberwolves somehow manage to get Russell Westbrook, I'm going to be a very, very happy, okay? I mean, it's going to be a, it's going to be a good thing, but it's, it's, it's just temporary. 
because he'll probably break down and we're the timber wolves, all right? I mean, it doesn't really matter. It, it, happiness is based on happenstance and if the circumstances in our life are going good enough, well, then we're happy. But joy, joy is based on something that is so much deeper than that. Joy, again, is something that only God can produce in us. It is a supernatural thing. and It is why Paul could say, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Listen, joy is the inevitable result of living your life with God's priorities. If you will live for God in his glory, you'll experience joy. Love God. Love people. Make disciples. Live with that and you experience joy. Despite the unimaginable stress in his life, Paul found himself in a spot where he could experience joy even in the prison cell. So how can we experience that in the midst of our turbulence? Well, verse 5 gives us our next clue. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. In the last century, William Barclay was a New Testament scholar. He died many years ago, but he was just great with the Greek language. And he said that that word that the NIV translates gentleness there is one of the most untranslatable of all Greek words. In fact, in his day and age, if you had lived and picked up any number of translations of the Bible, you might find 15, 16 different ways that that verse had been translated. I think the ESV does the best job in our generation. It just simply translates the word reasonable, reasonableness. Let your reasonableness be evident to all. Barclay wrote this. The Greeks explained this word as justice and something better than justice. They said that this is the quality that ought to come when strict justice became unjust because of its general, generality. A man has this quality if he knows when not to apply the strict letter of the law and when to relax justice and introduce mercy. And he uses the example then of a student. Most of us have been students at some point in our life and we've turned in papers at some point in our life. And he says, suppose that there are two students who turn in papers and one student gets an 80% in that paper and another student gets 50% on that paper. In the strict letter of the law, the student who got 50% fails and the student who got 80, depending on your school system, might have a C plus or a B minus on that paper. He says, but there's more to the story than that. The student who scored the 80% on that paper had ideal conditions, the best of technology, great computer, all the books that he needed, plenty of leisure time, all the time in the world, and peace to study. The student who scored the 50% was a young woman who was living in poverty. She didn't have the best of materials. She had no computer. She couldn't afford the books. She was working two jobs just to help support her family. Her loved one recently died, and she's facing an illness herself. In strict justice, she deserves to fail. But in justice, in something better than justice, she deserves to have mercy shown to her. And the person who knows how to do this would score her paper maybe a little bit higher. It is the quality of someone who knows how to apply the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. That is the beautiful description of what a Christ follower does. We offer justice and something better than justice because of how blessed we are. We have a God who's gone the extra mile for us. Why wouldn't we want to do that for others? Verse 5 ends with these precious words, the Lord is near. When we're going through turbulence, remember, the Lord is near. His nearness doesn't depend on how we feel. He's near. 
God hasn't forgotten you. I have a friend named Grant who goes to our Loring Park campus. Grant's a police officer in Minneapolis, and his job is really just to love the homeless population of our city. When it's cold, he goes and brings them blankets and warm food. When it's hot, he brings them water and ice cream. And he just loves these folks. I love when I get a chance to go out with Grant in his little Polaris vehicle and hang out with our city's homeless. And when I do, I'm always surprised at the number of my brothers and sisters in Christ who are living on the streets. Men and women who've gone through very difficult times. And so many of them will say, Pastor, I just want you to know that this is really hard. But the thing that gets me through is knowing that God is near. That God is near. Most of us will never face homelessness in our lives, but we will face turbulence. And we'll face a myriad of emotions that comes with that. Listen, God isn't afraid of your emotions. He wants you to bring even your emotions to him. He's okay when you bring your anger and your questions and your wonderings. David does that all over the Psalms. In Psalm chapter 18, verse 6, David just simply says, In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. You can almost hear him doing that. And from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. What a beautiful picture of how God listens to our prayers. In Psalm 23, 4, from that very famous passage, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David showed us that when going through turbulence, the best thing that we can do is to recognize that God is near and he can be found in prayer. Prayer was the mechanism that God used to calm David's anxious heart in some of the darkest of days. When going through turbulence, he teaches us, go to God first. When going through turbulence, go to God first. This is how Paul put it in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. These are verses that are familiar to so many of us. Would you do me a favor and read these with me? Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul begins verse 6 by telling us not to be anxious about anything. Those are heavy words for those of us who struggle with anxiety. If you're one of those folks who, like me, oftentimes wakes up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat because you're just anxious about so many things in your life, this is a passage that we don't want to just devote three minutes to. So later on in this series, Pastor Dale is going to preach an entire series, uh, entire sermon on anxiety. What I do want to say is that Paul was confident that we could bring all of our anxiety to God. And he encourages us to do that through prayer and petition and supplication. We're all going to face situations in our life that have the potential to steal our joy. When going through turbulence, go to God first. Now you might be thinking to yourself, I've heard that before. Tried it a thousand times. I tried it last night when I woke up in the middle of the night. I went to God. You know, that might be where you're at today. Let me ask you a question. What were you praying for? Were you praying, God, I want a turbulent free life. Give me easy street. I, I, just, I just need a break. Or were you praying, God, this storm's rough. This storm is beating me up. But Lord, I pray that if there's something that you're trying to teach me in the storm, 
If there's something that you're trying to produce in me in this storm, would you teach me to praise you in the midst of the storm? There's a big difference between those two prayers. One of those prayers treats God like he's a genie in a bottle and we just want the easy life. The other prayer says, God, you're sovereign and you're in control and you are trustworthy. God, I'd love to get out of this situation, but I pray that you, as my sovereign God, would reveal yourself to me in this storm. I believe that you're good. I believe that you love me. I believe that you're producing something in me that is for my good and for your glory. You are in control. So help me to see you. Help me to know you. Help me to love you. Help me to rejoice with you in this situation. When I was in college, I was facing a particularly stressful semester. I was an RA and my RA partner, my roommate and I just didn't get along. We didn't see things eye to eye. We handled things so differently. We were RAs over an athletic dorm at a pretty strict college. And so the guys in my dorm wanted to make it their aim in life to break every rule that the college had that semester and we're supposed to enforce it. And I remember I was up till about 2.30 in the morning every night that semester. There wasn't a night I got to bed before 2.30 in the morning. I had an 8 a.m. class. I missed that class so many times that semester. It was the class on preaching, by the way, all right? It, I got a C in it, all right? I'll, I'll be honest with you, all right? It was, it was tough. And um, it was so hard. I just remember that I had such anxiety the doctors told me I had a pre-ulcer if it continued as a 20-year-old kid with a pre-ulcer. My eyes were so focused on myself in that season of life. I was mad at God. I was mad at my preaching professor. I was mad at the world. Couldn't stand the guys in my dorm that I was supposed to love and serve. And my girlfriend at the time, who's been my wife of almost 28 years this month, said to me, Brian, let's take a walk. And our campus had this beautiful mountain on the side of the campus, and it had this bald spot where a forest fire years ago had cleared some trees. And we went up to that clear spot, which had become kind of a hangout for students. And it gave you this beautiful view of the campus. And my wise, beyond her years girlfriend at the time said, Brian, look at that campus. And the campus had become really small when we were up there on the mountain. She said, Look at the city. There are thousands upon thousands of people down there. Every one of them is dealing with their own issues. Some of those people lost someone they loved this week. Some of those people lost their jobs this week. There are students on that campus doing way worse than you. And all you can think about is you. Maybe you need to change your perspective. Maybe you need to get above the fray. Maybe you need to thank God for what he's done in you and trust that God is producing something in you. That trip up that mountain became known in our relationship as the trip up to Mount Perspective. And it began to change the way that I prayed. And it began to change me at that time in my life. The words that Paul uses in verse 6, prayer, petition, and thanksgiving, are three words that essentially mean pray. Warren Wearsby, the former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, who passed away earlier this year, said, Paul does not write pray about it. He's too wise to do that. He uses three words that describe right praying. Prayer, petition, and thanksgiving. Right praying involves all three. Prayer is the idea of coming before God in adoration, recognizing his attributes. God, you are great. You are good. You love me. God, you're all-knowing. You're sufficient. 
Petition is the idea of coming before God and asking for something for yourself, for, for others. It is so okay to come to God and to ask. He wants us to do that. He is a good father who talks about if you as human fathers know how to give good gifts to your sons, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give to you? We'll come back to that word. Thanksgiving is self-explanatory. It's coming to God and saying, God, thank you for the good things that you've blessed me with. God loves when we do that. It's the last time you just put a list together of all the ways that God has blessed you. I challenge you to do that this afternoon. And my guess is that you can fill several pages of, of notebook paper of the things that God has done for you. Write it out. See what he does. Now, back to that word, petition. In the original language, it carries more than just the idea, though, of asking. It hints at the idea of mystery. You're asking God to reveal a mystery to you. And through the power of his Holy Spirit, you're asking God to show you what it is that is really the source of the turbulence in your life. Let me give you an example. Maybe you lost your job. You could pray, God, give me a job. It's one way of handling that. Or you could pray, God, I'm afraid. I've lost my job and I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to provide for my family, for myself. Afraid I won't be able to pay the bills at the end of the month. God, I'm afraid of what others are going to think about me. Now you're hitting at something. Now you're beginning to see honesty with God. God, I'm afraid that I won't be able to provide. I'm afraid of how I'll look. Now we've laid ourselves before God and we've lifted God up as the provider, not the job. We've begun to recognize that our jobs aren't our source of provision. God is the source of provision. There's a mindset shift here. One way of praying honors God. One way of praying honors whatever it is that we're praying for. One pastor put it this way, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And you might argue with that equation, but the idea that he's getting at here is that Jesus is sufficient. If Christ is all he has, then we have all that we need. But God is a good God, and he hasn't just given us himself, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 7 shows us the results of this type of prayer, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love that Paul uses the military term of being guarded as he was currently being guarded 24-7. It's a beautiful visual of what God is doing to our heart. When we come to him in that kind of prayer, he's, 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 he's giving us not the guard of the prison guard who's keeping us in prison, but he's guarding our hearts from what our enemy would want to do to steal that joy, to, to take away what God's producing in our life. Paul, despite his circumstances, was such a man at peace. Remember the guy who sang hymns in the Philippian prison, Paul? Here in the Roman prison, he's still at peace. Listen to what he said to the Philippians, kind of addressing the elephant in the room in the first chapter of Philippians. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He was at peace because he knew that God was at work in the midst of his storm. Do you want that kind of peace today? Then let me give you some words from Paul. Rejoice in the Lord, Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness, let, let your, 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 your 
grace that is upon grace, justice that is something better than justice, your reasonableness be known to all. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be known before God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So go to God first. Now, this series isn't just about praying through turbulence. And you're going to hear some more over the coming weeks. One of the great gifts that God's given us is Jesus plus some other gifts. And he's given us each other. He's given us a church body. Here at Wooddale Church, we don't think that anybody walking through turbulence should have to walk through turbulence alone. I wonder what the turbulence is that you're facing this week. Maybe you're facing the turbulence of hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And if that's you, I want to encourage you, check out our ministry called Celebrate Recovery that happens on Tuesday nights. It is a wonderful place to find freedom and hope from all sorts of issues that weigh us down as human beings. Maybe you need someone to just pray with you, somebody that you can be honest with, somebody that you can be real with, that you know that what you share with them is going to stay with them, and you can meet with them once a week for as long as you need and know that they're going to pray for you and hold it in confidence. Check out our Stephen Ministry program. Maybe you're facing another type of addiction. We have support groups for all types of addiction. Maybe you've recently lost a spouse. A place at the table is a newer ministry here at Wooddale Church. Started over in this past year for those who are recent widows or widowers. Maybe you're in a season of transition or loss at work. The job transition support group at Wooddale has been around for over 15 years and it's helped thousands of people find meaningful employment and it meets every Monday morning at 7.30. Maybe you've uh, recently experienced divorce. We have a divorce care ministry to walk alongside of you during that very turbulent season of life with love and grace. We started a brand new ministry called Family Grace Ministries to support family members of those who are struggling with mental health challenges. And friends, that's just a, a fraction of what Wooddale has to offer. If you'd like more information on any of that, I want to encourage you, go to our website, wooddale.org care. We're here as a church, and we believe that together we're better. We believe that God can work in this body to accomplish great things. And when we can't muster up the strength in and of ourselves to pray, when we can't muster up that joy, sometimes it helps to have some others who are there to help carry that burden. One of the greatest gifts that God's given to us. But when going through turbulence, we want to go to him first. So we're going to close with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that you're a God who loves us, is for us, is in control, is sovereign. Lord, I thank you that there is nothing that any of us in this room have done that is so bad that you've turned your back on us. Lord, you're a God of grace. You died for us. God, would you help us to believe that? For those right now who are in a season of turbulence and are experiencing the pain that comes with that, would you just offer hope and healing? Father, you tell us in our turbulence that you are near you allow them to experience the nearness of God right now? Lord, Paul speaks about this peace that passes understanding, a supernatural peace that is produced by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for that, for us as a church. Lord, I know there's many here who struggle with anxiety. 
Many here who struggle with sleepless nights, many who are worried about somebody else in the storm in a child's life, a grandchild's life. God, would you bring healing? Would you bring hope? Would you replace our fear with the joy that can come in the Lord always? Lord, would you remind us of the seasons of turbulence in the past that you have faithfully taken us through? God, for those of us who are in a season of life right now that feels rather turbulent-free, would you use us to be a blessing in the lives of others? Because I know, every one of us knows, that day's probably coming for us when we're going to need it on the other end. So use us as your church, Lord. Thank you for the love you have for us and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.